It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ every weekday morning from our studio on the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Welcome back to the Wednesday edition of Daily Thunder. And today we're going to be continuing our study on overcoming spiritual apathy. I really wanna focus this week on gaining lasting spiritual passion. Before we dive into that, let me give you a little review from the last session that we did. So many of us are frustrated with the compromise and the apathy that we see all around us in the modern church. And it's really easy to kind of point that critical finger outward rather than saying, Lord, send a revival and let it begin with me. And so we talked about how critical it is to allow God to shine that searchlight within our own souls, remove the plank from our own eye before we can see clearly to begin to inspire the modern church towards something more. Today, we're going to be talking a little bit more about personal revival. We often think of revival as a spiritual high that eventually fades. So maybe in high school, if you went to a, a Christian summer camp, you, you know, you got this spiritual high, but then get back into daily life and it just eventually fades to a flicker. Or in our adult life, the same thing can happen. Maybe we have a really powerful Bible study or some event that we go to that really inspires us. And then distractions, cares of this life creep in and pretty soon our spiritual life is dull and mediocre again. But that is not the way God intends our Christian life to be. And it's not the way true revival is intended to be either. In fact, in Romans 12, 11, we are told something quite astounding where Paul says, keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Now that is a really astounding verse because when you look deeper at keep your spiritual fervor, it literally means to be hot like a boiling liquid or fire glowing with red hot flame. So this isn't just like, yeah, stay the course, still, you know, support Christianity and have a, have a daily quiet time. This is like spiritual passion. And Paul says to keep it, to maintain it. What does it mean to be spiritually hot? Jesus Christ and the things of God have to become the primary focus of our lives, the greatest passion of our soul. We gain an obsession with him that doesn't fade, that is every day, that is growing greater and stronger day by day. But is it actually realistic to keep our spiritual fervor, to be glowing with red hot flame spiritually at all times? I remember posting something one time on one of our social media pages that was just an exhortation to be passionately going after Jesus Christ on a daily basis. And there were a lot of positive responses, but one person posted a comment that said, you know, sometimes we just need to let go of these unrealistic spiritual expectations and go take a nap. It is really easy to fall into that mentality. In fact, that's a very common mentality in the Christian world today. But God doesn't actually call it unrealistic. Spiritual fervor is not meant to be a high that comes and goes. He says to keep it, which means to actively maintain and cultivate it. So what does that look like practically? How do we avoid slipping into the apathy that is so common all around us today? Little story from Christian history, if you've ever heard of C.T. Studd, he was a great missionary to Africa, did incredible things. He was a famous cricket player in England and gave up wealth and fame in order to become a missionary. His father was converted by the teaching of D.L. Moody. And his father had been a man who was wealthy and he spent all of his time at the theater and at parties and playing cards. And he was really stirred by the teaching of D.L. Moody and 
gave his life to Christ and then he went to Moody and said, you know, do I have to give up playing cards and going to the theater and doing, you know, going to these parties and doing all these sporting things that I love to do? And D.L. Moody said, you know, when you are really captivated by Jesus Christ, you won't have a passion for those things anymore. It's not like those things are necessarily wrong or to do them every once in a while is bad, but your real passion is going to be knowing Jesus Christ and making him known. You're gonna to want to go after souls. You're going to want to build his kingdom. You're going to want to spend every day getting to know him more and more. And that's what's going to get you up out of bed in the morning, not whatever is the latest show at the theater. And it's not something you have to force when you are in love with Jesus Christ, when you are passionate for him, when you have true spiritual fervor, that is the natural outflow of spiritual passion. And this is not something that you can muster up. It's the natural byproduct of a, of a powerful daily relationship with Jesus Christ. So according to Romans 12, 11, we are to never lose our spiritual fervor. We are to actively keep it and purposely maintain it. It's not dependent on circumstances or attending events for a short-term spiritual high. It's all about maintaining our personal hunger for God and not allowing our spiritual fire to die. In the last lesson, this last part of the study on overcoming spiritual apathy, we talked about the lukewarm church in Revelation 3, where Jesus says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. Now, just comparing hot and cold and lukewarm here. Hot means boiling hot water or blazing hot fire. So it is really, really hot. If you touch it, you're going to get burned. Cold is chilled, freezing, no heat whatsoever. Lukewarm is somewhere in between the two. And if you look at what Jesus is saying here to the lukewarm church, he says, I would actually rather have you be cold than lukewarm. What I really want is for you to be hot, but if you have to choose, I'd rather have you be cold than lukewarm. So why is lukewarmness worse than being spiritually cold? Jesus says, I would rather you be cold than lukewarm. At least those who are cold know they're cold. Usually they they realize that they're dead in their sin. They're just not hungry for any kind of change in their life. But the danger when we slip into lukewarmness is we oftentimes think we are fine. So when we are lukewarm, the biggest danger is assuming that we don't need anything more spiritually, which leaves us comfortable in our mediocrity. Somebody who's cold and has turned away from God usually has that prick of conscience that, the conscience that says, I know my life isn't as it should be. And they are, it's, it's usually easier to reach a cold, a spiritually cold person with a message of the gospel than a spiritually lukewarm person because they don't think they need anything. As Jesus says, because you say, I am rich, I become wealthy, I have need of nothing, and I and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So Jesus is saying, I, I would rather you be cold and know that you're not right with me than think you have it all together when you are actually in a terrible state. In modern Christianity, we often don't realize that something is lacking in our spiritual life. We think we're doing just fine. We don't always feel our need for more of God, especially because we've had it pretty easy thus far. If you live in modern American Christianity, there hasn't been a, hasn't been a lot of challenge to the modern church of standing strong for our faith. Now that could be changing, and it is rapidly changing in our culture, but when things start to change in our culture and pressure starts to be there for those who really want to follow after Jesus Christ, it really exposes those of us who have slipped into that lukewarm state. So let's dive back into looking at Jesus' counsel to the lukewarm church. The first step, as we talked about in the last session on this, was to accept his gold refined in the fire. 
Allow him to shine that searchlight within our souls and purge out the dross in a loving and gentle and patient way. This is not something he does like beating us over the head. It's this beautiful process of being shaped into his likeness. And then the second piece of counsel that Jesus gives to the lukewarm church is this. Buy from him white garments that we may be clothed. Now, what does it mean to be clothed in his white garments? think about this. We are either going to be clothed clothed in our own self-righteousness and think that, hey, we're doing a pretty good job. We have it together. You know, we're, we're right with God. Or we're going to realize that we have nothing outside of him and that our only hope is to be clothed in his righteousness. There's that hymn that says, dressed in his righteousness alone. And that really is what is needed to maintain spiritual passion because there is almost nothing that leads to spiritual apathy quicker than self-righteousness, believing that we're doing fine because we appear righteous on the outside. But leaning on our own appearance of goodness leads to spiritual death. Paul spoke about this in Philippians 3.9. He said, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Self-righteousness is the very trap that the Pharisees fell into. And Jesus told them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. The true condition of the Laodicean church is that the fact that they saw something very different than what God saw. That what they saw was, hey, we're doing well. We don't have need of anything. What God saw was this. You are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. There are many Christians today who simply want to add a little bit of self-made righteousness to their self-focused lives. And I know this has been a trap I've fallen into in the past. Maybe it's something that you can relate to personally. When we want to do this, we're trying to fool ourselves into thinking that we have need of nothing. We have to be very purposeful and watchful not to fall into that trap of self-righteousness because when we do that, we push God away. We think, I don't need anything. I'm doing fine on my own. Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. Do we live in that reality? Do we come into the presence of God every day with an understanding of our utter need for him? Lord, I can do nothing without you. I must be clothed in your righteousness or I will surely fail. And that is where exchanging our righteousness for his begins with a simple prayer that says, Lord, clothe me in your righteousness. There is such an incredible difference between self-righteousness and Christ's righteousness. I think a lot of times as modern believers who, who are maybe frustrated with the apathy that we see and the compromise that we see so widespread in the modern church, it's really easy to swing into self-righteousness and legalism, to buckle down and say, I'm going to make sure I don't fall into apathy. I'm going to make sure I don't fall into compromise and try to do it in our own strength. And then we become entrapped in self-righteousness. But let's just take a look at the difference between self-righteousness and Christ's righteousness. Self-righteousness oppresses, but Christ's righteousness liberates. Self-righteousness chokes life, but Christ's righteousness gives life. Self-righteousness is based upon self-effort, but walking in Christ's righteousness is based upon the supernatural enabling grace of God. Self-righteousness is based upon rules, but walking in Christ's righteousness is based upon a relationship with the King of all kings. I've been in, men, in women's ministry for years, and I've noticed a trend creeping into the modern church, especially in books and messages geared for women, which are seeking to set us free from unrealistic expectations and pressure and tell us things like this. Don't become a martyr. Don't kill yourself to serve others. Take time for you. Don't lose your own self-identity. Don't try to prove anything to anyone. Just be who you want to be. 
We need to step back though and think, okay, what really leads to exhaustion and burnout? Because here we have the two extremes. We have legalistic Christians who are trying the self-effort to escape the mediocrity. And then we have this, hey, let it all go. Don't try to rise up to a standard because that will lead to burnout and exhaustion. But what really leads to burnout? Burnout happens when we are not abiding in Christ, when we are not clothed in his white garments, we are walking in our own effort, trying to lean on our own self-righteousness and becoming exhausted and burned out in the process. We actually don't need a bunch more human advice on how to regain our self-identity or protect ourselves. We simply need to know our position in Christ and learn how to abide, which also means to remain in him. Here's the key truth. In Christ, we have the ability to live lives that would otherwise be impossible because it is not we who live, but Christ who lives in us. When it comes to righteous living, we are supposed to focus on abiding in him and let him do the rest because in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead and we are complete in him. I love this verse that says, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you with for, present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. He is able to keep us from stumbling, not our own self-effort. As Corey Ten Boom said, when I try, I fail. When I trust, God succeeds. I would challenge you today to ask God to show you whether you are leaning on your own righteousness or his, because leaning on your own righteousness will lead to one of two things. Either you'll think you're fine and you have need of nothing, or you'll become burned out and exhausted and want to throw in the towel when it comes to the Christian life because you're trying to do everything in your own strength. Ask God to clothe you in his white garments that you may be clothed in his righteousness. Learn how to abide in him every day. That's where that's where we can remain, clothed in his white garments. There's another piece of counsel that Jesus gives to the lukewarm church, and that is to anoint our eyes with eye salve that we may see. Now, this verse reminds me of when Jesus anointed the eyes of the blind man in John 9. It says that Jesus spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Therefore, they said to him, how were your eyes opened? He answered and said, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go and wash in the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. There was this whole process where this man had to learn how to be have his eyes anointed by Jesus so that he would see as he was supposed to see. Very similar to the, the conversion of Saul when he became Paul, where he went blind for a time. And then it says when he was healed, something like scales fell off his eyes and suddenly he could see what Jesus saw. He could see according to a heavenly reality instead of an earthly one. Spiritually, I think it is very easy to have scales on our eyes, to have a spiritual blindness without even realizing that it is there. We might have sight, but we're not really seeing because we're seeing according to an earthly reality and not a heavenly one. Our gaze is on the temporal and not on the eternal. Jesus has to anoint our eyes so that we can see what he sees. Think about the fact that the blind man had to take action to benefit from what Jesus did to his eyes. He had to listen. He had to obey. He had to physically wash that blindness away. And the work of God was seen in the reality of his sight. Our first step in following this piece of Jesus' counsel starts with a simple prayer that says this, Lord, give me eyes to see what you see, not what the world sees, not what I naturally see, but what you see. That simple prayer can be completely life-changing. It can take us from selfish living to sacrificial living. I remember the first time in my life that I really earnestly prayed that prayer 
that prayer, Lord, give me eyes to see what you see. And suddenly it was like, I began to see things and think about things I had never thought of before. I had never really understood the cry of the orphan, the the vulnerable children around the world. And suddenly I began to have this burden to find out more about the vulnerable children around the world. And I was shocked to learn that there were 143 million or more orphans around the world in need of advocates. And as a Christian for many, many, many years, I had never seen them. I began to suddenly see the orphan crisis everywhere. And that led to the adoption of four out of our six children. Now, I would have remained completely blind to that burden on the heart of God if I hadn't taken time to pray that prayer, Lord, give me eyes to see what you see. The same is true when it comes to opening our eyes to see the lost. Approximately 150,000 people die every day without knowing Jesus. Do we see them or have we become indifferent to the state of their soul, to where they're headed in eternity? Are we seeing what God sees? Are we asking God for his burden? Here's a practical step that you can take. When you are approaching any situation, whether it's your family or your daily life or the crisis that has been happening around the world this year, get in the habit of praying that prayer, Lord, give me eyes to see what you see. And you may be surprised at what happens. Now, you may hear me talk about praying those prayers and think, well, I don't want to adopt four children. God leads everybody differently in response, but as he opens our eyes, we suddenly can adopt the burdens that are on his heart and he leads us specifically of what he wants to do about those, what he wants us to do about those burdens. And also we begin to see the incredible power of God as opposed to the 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 perspective from this world that can so often lead to fear and intimidation or oppression and discouragement. It's like the story of Elisha with his servant when they were surrounded by the Syrian army. Elisha basically prayed that prayer, open his eyes on behalf of his servant that he may see. It was the same prayer. He was just praying it on behalf of his servant. And it says, then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots and of fire all around Elisha. So you may be surprised as suddenly your eyes are open, not only to the needs around the world and what God wants you to do about them, but the mighty power and faithfulness of God when you begin to pray that prayer. Lord, let me see what you see. When we pray that prayer, we develop a whole new pattern for seeing. We start to see everything through a heavenly lens instead of an earthly one. It says in Psalm 16, 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. When we set the Lord before us and we see through his lens, we will not be moved. It means no longer fearing what this world fears. It means no longer overlooking the needs of others. It means no longer being distracted by the temporal allurements of the culture. It means no longer being bombarded with condemnation and insecurity because we are seeing God's, what God sees. We are seen according to a heavenly reality. Now, there are a lot of other things that we can do in order to maintain and keep our spiritual fervor. And we'll be going into those more over the next few lessons. But I believe it starts with these two practical steps. And it starts with saying, Lord, I am willing to do whatever it takes to abide in you, to be clothed in your righteousness, instead of leaning on my own self-righteousness and my own strength. And it also starts with a willingness to let Jesus anoint our eyes with ISAF so that we begin to see what he sees, where we're not afraid to see what he sees, but we say, Lord, I want to adopt the burdens on your heart. I want to see according to a heavenly and not an earthly reality. If we pursue those two things, if we pray those two prayers, we will begin to triumph over spiritual apathy.
Let's not let the enemy fool us into thinking that spiritual apathy is something we should just expect or accept in our Christian lives. Jesus reminds us in Luke 14, 34, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? I want to finish this lesson with one of my favorite quotes from Amy Carmichael that I think puts this all into great perspective. I've quoted this many times. If you've ever followed any of my podcasts or anything, this is just something I always come back to because it's so clear on how to overcome lukewarmness in our daily lives. She wrote, Comrades in this solemn fight, let us settle it as something that cannot be shaken. We are here to live holy, loving, lowly lives. We cannot do this unless we walk very, very close to our Lord Jesus. Anything that would hinder us from the closest walk possible till we see him face to face is not for us. Are we willing to let go of anything that is hindering us from the closest walk possible with our Lord? By his grace, may we choose to walk so close to him that we're willing to let him remove anything that is hindering us from the closest walk possible. And by his grace, may we never lose our spiritual fervor. God bless. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is streamed daily, Monday through Friday, from our studio in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekend church service is delivered live and streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellersley.com. Note that our live weekday in-person version of Daily Thunder is scheduled to resume this upcoming June in conjunction with our training season. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.